Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming up today on the What's Chad Doing podcast, you're going to hear my conversation with legendary basketball player Earl the Pearl Monroe. One of the most trusted voices in Portland radio for more than a decade, Chad Doing. Well, what's going on, my friends? Thank you once again for taking time to join the What's Chad Doing podcast. Coming up today, you're going to hear my conversation with the great Earl the Pearl Monroe, one of the greatest nicknames in the history of the NBA. But his book is really a great read, not just for sports fans or NBA fans or basketball fans, but I think if you're someone that enjoys reading about someone's life and you love great stories, this book has got it all. It's called Earl the Pearl, My Story. And I was fortunate enough to catch up with him. He's one of the greatest players in the history of the game. But what is striking is how he was able to overcome and have such a long and successful career growing up in a time where racial tension was incredibly high. And it's going to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when he shares his story of being chased by the Klan in Virginia many years ago. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It is truly one of my favorites, and I am fascinated by Earl the Pearl. And the guy who got me into the business, John Phillips, he did a lot of work with Nike and had a great relationship with a number of NBA players back in the day, and he swears by Earl the Pearl. So when I had a chance to uh, catch up with him and talk about his book, you know I'm not going to miss out on that. So enjoy it. Earl the Pearl Monroe here on What's Chad Doing? He starts our conversation by telling me how he got the nickname Earl the Pearl Monroe. Well, I don't know who gave it to me, but, you know, I didn't start playing basketball until I was about 14 years of age. And I wasn't very good at all. And people started to, you know, ridicule me, make fun of me, talk to me, talk about me. And uh, one of the things I used to do was go out on the basketball court by myself and try and invent moves. And I would in turn take those moves on the uh, court and try them out. And, you know, my, I guess my teammates and all these uh, other guys I might play with on the playground started calling me Thomas Edison for, for trying these moves out. That's pretty good. Now, Earl, <laughs> uh, tell us about this now. You, you, you know, your game was so well-defined by your smooth nature, by the way you would flow up and down the court. There was, you were such a unique at the time. And, and you've said this before, that there's really no player that reminds you of yourself, is there? Well, not not in, in in words of what I did, you know, and how I did those things. Uh, again, those things were, um, you know, trial and error. And as I did them, the, the good things I kept and the bad things I tossed out. But I think the whole thing in a nutshell got to be that, uh, you know, there are a lot of guys who do some of the things that I do but or I did um, and the league is basically based on those things that I did. When I first got into the league and, you know, the uh, even the reporters or whatnot in Baltimore where I was drafted, uh, they would call me a hot dog and so forth and so on. And uh, they kind of changed their minds when they start seeing people uh, start coming to the stadium to see me play. 
And then consequently, that started to happen all around the league. And uh, all of a sudden, we had a new game in town. You know, you grew up in Philly, but you loved the Celtics as a youngster, and you would pretend that you were Russell, Cousy, and Charmin on the playground. What about those teams captured your imagination? Well, I guess one thing was that they were winning. (laughs) 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 But, you know, being from Philadelphia, and um, I guess it was also, you know, kind of a thing with the guys in Philadelphia were all Philadelphia fans and you know we just kind of went against them and we became Boston fans because they that was their big nemesis and I think uh, you know over time you know I got to you know really like the, the Boston uh, guys but even more so our style of play uh, on the team that we formed as a young as a young team we called ourselves the Trotters but we fashion our game after the Celtics. Bill Bradley, former U.S. Senator, wrote the forward for the book, and he said that the quiet one finally opens up. I mean, why did you decide to finally come out and tell your story? Well, you know, it's been a long time, and I've been asked um, numerous times to do a book. But I wanted to do a book at a time that I felt it was, you know, important. Um, This being the 40th anniversary of our last Nick championship, I felt... Uh, really compelled to do it. And also the fact that, you know, a lot of people know Earl Monroe, but they don't know where I come from. They don't know all the nuances that I've been, you know, through. They don't know any of the things that I think, you know, make the man. And through this book, I've kind of opened myself up. I've talked about the good things. I've talked about the bad things that have happened to me. I've been good. I've been bad. Um, all these things and all these things, you know, collectively make me who I am today. Now, you played your college ball at Winston-Salem State under Hall of Fame coach Clarence Big, Ga- Big House Gaines. How did you enjoy your time in college and, and what was Coach Gaines like to play for? Well, I really enjoyed my time in college. I mean, I, I remember when I graduated, we, we were going, you know, through the uh, – passed through the auditorium and we went into the gym and everybody took their hats off, threw them up in the air like we, it was all over. And I didn't do that. And the guy asked me, why didn't I do that? I said, because now we have to go to work. <laughs> We've had a vacation for four years. But uh, Coach Gaines was a wonderful coach, um, uh, really stressed a lot of discipline uh, as, you know, in his players. Uh, was more of a philosopher as well because what he tried to do is teach us, you know, not only to be basketball players but to be men. And, um, you know, when he, you know, a lot of people uh, didn't like him, so to speak, when, when they were in school with all the things that he was trying to tell them. But every homecoming, uh, they come back. And there'd be a long line of people. He he looked like the Pied Piper. He had so many people behind him. And if if one guy stopped, everybody would bump into each other. So he he had that kind of influence on us and our lives. And uh, you know, it's not you know every day there's somebody that t- says something about Coach Gaines to me. Now, Earl, you got to tell me about this. This story is unbelievable. You were in Baltimore. And the Pacers had interest in, at the time in trading for you, but Indiana was not a safe place, was it? I mean, you recall stories of Pacer players carrying guns to the arena because there was a high number of Klansmen in the area at the time, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, having been in North Carolina, I had been chased by the, <laughs> the Klan, you know, at, at one time. And uh, when I stopped playing for the Baltimore Bullets, I, I, I actually forced them to trade me. And I had given them 
three uh, teams that I wanted to be traded to. One was L.A., the other Chicago, and, and Philadelphia, my hometown. And I went out to Indiana. My agent sent me out there and said, you know, go check them out. And, and I did. And, you know, Indiana was a great organization. They had, you know, a real good team. And they had offered me, a, a, you know, a, a contract. And it wasn't until after the game that we went into the locker room and the guys got dressed. And then after getting dressed, they reached into a locker, a little small locker that was over top of their locker. And they would bring me to take it out guns. And I asked one of the players, the, uh, by the name of Freddie Lewis, uh, I said, Freddie, uh, what's with the guns? He said, well, you know, this is uh, a lot of clan activity is around here. and We just have guns to protect ourselves. Well, I had been in this position before, so I uh, immediately ran out into a corridor. And it wasn't like today because, you know, we, we have cell phones today. We just make that call. But in the stadiums back in those days, it was maybe one or two uh, pay phones. And I ran around this, you know, corridor, and I found a pay phone, and I called Larry up, and I said, Larry, uh, I don't think this is the place for me. And wow. he kind of giggled and said, well, you know, I've got a deal on the table for you with the Knicks. And um, I thought he was kidding because we had played against the Knicks so ferociously for the four years. And um, and I told him, hey, I wasn't going to the Knicks. And he said, well, listen, Earl, just go home, take a couple of days, think about it, and give me a call. And that's pretty much what I did. And I guess what I came up with is that, um, you know, it was a good opportunity to play with Clyde, Walt Frazier. Uh, I thought we'd make a pretty good backcourt uh, team. And um, as it turned out, um, that's what happened. You know, Earl, I've read that the reason why it worked so well with you going to New York and, and forming that partnership with uh, Walt Frazier was the fact that you went in and you let it be his team. You didn't try to take over or step on his coattails. You let him be himself. And then with that, you guys were able to develop a respect and an understanding of one another. Talk about that process. I mean, arguably one of the best shooting backcourts of all time. Well, unless unless we're uh, Steph Curry and, uh, and Thompson of uh, the Golden State Warriors, <laughs> yeah, when you when you hear Mark Jackson, when you hear Mark Jackson come out and say, "Hey, my two are the best shooting tandem of all time," you've got to at least raise your eyebrow at that, right? Well, I raise my eyebrow, but I'm supposed to be one of Mark Jackson's heroes, so I can't say too much about that. <laughs> I love it. It's Earl the Pearl Monroe with us here on the program. Now, I wanted to ask you: you played in the legendary Baker League back in Philly. What can you tell me about the league, and how'd you enjoy that experience? Well, that league was a, a, a great experience uh, because it really um, put you in position to, to really play pro basketball. In that league, you had all the, you know, the guys from the different teams in the league that would come to Philadelphia and, and play. We also had guys in what they called the Eastern League back in those days. In Eastern League, a lot of guys opt to go to the Eastern League as opposed to coming into the NBA because they got paid more money. You know, the pay scale wasn't that great back in those days. And a guy could work all day for a particular team in their, in their factory or whatever kind of capacity they can work. And then they can play on the weekends, and that's when they get paid extra. So a lot of guys opt to, to play in the Eastern League. Well, we had the Eastern League, the NBA players, and guys who may be just getting out of college. And the 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 league itself was was uh, formed by a guy named Sonny Hill in Philadelphia, 
and it was just great basketball. Uh, we learned so much uh, in that uh, in the league during the summertime, and it was easier for me to make it, the transition from college into the NBA because uh, we played that type of ball during that summer. Now, in the book, you recall the day when President Kennedy was assassinated. For you, he was like a family member because of the way he cared for black people at the time and his efforts to make you first-class citizens. Take us back to November twenty-second, 1963, and, and walk us through that, because I love your thoughts that you share on that. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that was, you know, the, 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 day, the day before, the 21st was my birthday. And so I'm walking across the uh, campus and uh, I'm looking at people and everybody seems to be sad. They, you know, have their head down and not talking. They're just walking very solemn in, 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 you know, in and around the, the area. And I walked into the, the canteen uh, where, you know, most everybody, you know, huddled around the, the, the um, radio just to kind of figure out what's going on and whatnot. And I was told that, you know, President Kennedy was killed. And it sent, you know, like a shockwave. Uh, and, it, you, know, it, you know, it was a day that was a bright, sunny day walking across campus. And all of a sudden, that day became just a dark day. And the gloom and whatnot, you know, really showed itself, you know, with the, you know, in the faces of the people and, and the attitudes and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, for me, it's a day that I'll always remember because, you know, it was a bright day that turned real dark real quickly. We're talking with the great Earl, the Pearl Monroe. You've got so many great stories in your book. I've got to ask you about a few of them. Take us back Sunday in Lawnside, New Jersey. You actually stopped a robber with your bare hands. How'd you pull that one off? Well, don't, don't think I was a hero in in this case. I, I think you were. No, I think you are a hero. <laughs> I was probably just a dumb kid, you know, not knowing <laughs> what I was doing. But got, we were at a place in Longside, New Jersey. And in Longside, New Jersey, you can go in, in, to package good stores <laughs> and, and get, you know, liquor, wine, whatever the case may be. Uh, in Philadelphia, Sunday, you couldn't do that. So on a Sunday, we go across and we get beer and whatever the case may be. And as we're coming out of this package goods store, uh, a guy comes up and pulls a gun on us and demands our money. And for some reason or whatnot, I was like on the side of him and I just happened to reach out and grab his gun real quick. And uh, I kind of probably surprised him a lot. He had a little 25 automatic <laughs> with the silver with a little white handle and whatnot. And, uh, and then he just scurried away. And it just so happened I kept the gun and took it with me to Winston-Salem. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, what about this one here? You go to Virginia to visit your girlfriend, and you're out in the rural area. And next thing you know, you're being chased by Klansmen. You stumbled upon an actual rally. Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. It is, because uh, I was going from, uh, this is my sophomore year, and I was going from Winston-Salem to Gretna, Virginia. And she, she must I had been... to borrow uh, my friend's car. So I'm, you know, driving. I get into Virginia. I, I'm in Danville. And all of a sudden, I look up, and there are lights that are <laughs> in my rear mirror. There's lights flashing. Yikes. And then I just look ahead, and there are more lights flashes in front of me. And then I just looked around, and, and there I am in the midst of this here Klux Klan rally. 
So I, so immediately I said, oh, gosh, what can I do? And so I, I jetted out, made a right-hand turn up this uh, road, and this road was long. And I just put, uh, you know, what's it, metal to the pedal or whatever, pedal to the metal, whatever the case may be. <laughs> and I jetted up. And there were three cars that came back, you know, came after me. But I uh, kind of outran them because I had a, a pretty good head start, and they just let me go. Now, the problem gets to be after that is that this car that I bought, you know, that that I had was, uh, didn't have brakes. <laughs> I mean, in order, in order to stop this car, you, hit the you had to use the emergency brake. Oh, no way. Okay. This is, this is why this car was called a Pinto. So it had so many colors, we, that's what we called it. So, you know, lo and behold, I get out there and I start, you know, easing the uh, emergency brake to kind of stop the car. And then if you can imagine the Flintstones, uh, when the car doesn't stop completely, You've got to put your foot, your left foot, out the door <laughs> and slide it along. Yabba dabba do! Exactly. Exactly. It's, that was, you know, we got, we, let me tell you one story about that car because I don't think that's it. <laughs> we, we, the car itself, it had a little window that we had to put our hand outside to work the windshield wipers <laughs> when it rained. So in Henderson, North Carolina, the car just breaks down, and it breaks down in, at a gas station. So somehow we get a ride back to Winston-Salem and whatnot, and that car stayed up in this gas station for about a year. Every time we went by, we could see the car sitting up on, a, on this hill. <laughs> we just saluted. <laughs> Keep on going. Now, you got to tell that is unbelievable. We're talking with the great Earl of Pearl Monroe. Now, what about your girlfriend's haunted house in Brooklyn? Oh, that was that was amazing. Um, first of all, I, you know, I, I guess I was trying to, sh- to show her that I was, you know, just a real big guy, <laughs> and I had I had a Rolls Royce uh, at that time. Sweet. And she worked in this uh, club with uh, this, actually with a girl named Linda Lovelace, but of course her name wasn't Linda Lovelace at the time. She was actually the Ivory, Ivory Snow girl. Oh. But but anyway. And so she worked in it as a bartender and whatnot, and I saw her, and I tried to, you know, hit on her. So uh, I came in one day, my my lights just shone in the window, bright lights, this Rolls Royce sitting out here. So eventually I get her, to, okay, let me take her home. So I, <laughs> so I get her in the car, and the car doesn't start. <laughs> So now I got I got it I got all these bases pressed up against the window looking at me and the car doesn't stop. Sorry. So I eventually had to call a um AAA or whatever to come and I guess I was so nervous that I didn't realize that I didn't put the car in park. <laughs> so, so he put the car in park, he turned it on, charged me $50 for it, and, and was out about his way. So a couple of weeks later, I go to her house, and I'm staying over. She tells me, yeah, I can stay over, but you got to stay out on the on the sofa. <laughs> so I go out, and I'm, I'm on the sofa, and then all of a sudden, I'm, I, I'm asleep, and then I feel something like jumps all over me. I can't move. I'm, I look up and I can't see anybody, but I can't move, and I'm struggling. And all of a sudden, I, I start cursing at it. I start 
doing all kinds of things, kicking and what I can't move though. <laughs> and so I started saying that the Lord's Prayer. You know, I been, this is a this is a spirit. I better say the Lord's Prayer. And I started saying that over and then I started saying that one of the passages that my mom used to say, the twenty third Psalm, and it kinda eased up on me. And I I finally got was able to break free and I got out of there and I just, I don't think I ever went back. Wow. That is a great story. I love it. Now, finally, what about Miles Davis? Legendary artist. One of the le- most legendary artists of all time. He used to call you all the time, but the problem was his raspy voice. You could never understand what he was telling you. <laughs> no, he used to say things like, hey, Earl, uh, uh, let's say, say, say the bed. And he was, talking, he was trying to say something to me, but I, all I could understand was Earl or bed. And all I would say is, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, right, uh-huh. So, interestingly enough, 20 years later, I read his autobiography. And, and it's done by the guy who was my co-writer, Quincy Troop. And I read this passage in, this, in, 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 in the book. It says that he had hip replacement when he was at the time he was calling me, which was 1973, 74. Um, and I, then I realized he was trying to offer me his orthopedic bed. <laughs> I had surgery on my left foot. <laughs> he loved so, the Knicks. So I, I said, this, this thing just jumped out at me. And, and, and you, I started laughing like for days. And uh, and then I went out to find Quincy Troop. Now this was five years, five six years ago, to do my book. And um, I found him out in, in in California. He was poet laureate of California at the time. And uh, we sat for a couple of days. He he wrote you know some, about fifty pages of stuff that he sent me. But uh, it didn't sound like Miles's book. It didn't sound like he had captured my voice the way that he captured Miles. <laughs> So I said, that's okay, you know. But it took me six months to find him. So I think year before last, uh, we we came in contact again because even through all the time that he was in L.A., he had a, an apartment that was just a, on the other side of the courtyard in our complex. So, so now, you know, we're here, we say, okay, let's go try to... And one thing I, I realized about him capturing my voice was the fact that uh, when he did Miles' book, he traveled with Miles for about eight months. So he knew everything about Miles, all the idiosyncrasies and all that. And, and Miles was from his hometown, so he had all that down. With me, for two days, he really couldn't capture. So to, since last June, we've been spending two to five hours a day, three times a week. Uh, over at his place, um, uh, recording and, and whatnot. And then, for the most part, I seem like I wrote the book because I did all the editing myself. And um, so I think we came up with uh, something that's very, very good. Um, it really expresses me. It gives people an idea of who I am, what I'm, what I'm about, and um, the fact that, um, you know, I've lived, I've lived a, a, you know, a pretty good life, and I'm like, you know, I'm just lucky. You know, some people don't get lucky. I've been lucky to, to be able to be in the position I am today. Well, I tell you what, uh, one of my very good friends, the gentleman that got me into the business, uh, 
from the Portland area. He's now down in the Bay Area once again. John Phillips, he uh, swore by you and used to tell me stories about you, and so I was I was happy. I finally got a chance to talk with you. Well, great. Well, you know, I didn't I didn't I didn't put any any stories in there about the Rose Garden because you know they used to throw beer bottles and whatnot down at me, so I wouldn't put that in <laughs> in the book. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Earl, what a pleasure. The, the book is out, Earl the Pearl Monroe, my story, Earl. What a pleasure it is to have you on the program, and I hope that you sell a lot of books. And not only that, but it's a must-read. Great to finally hear you open up. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the What's Chad Doing podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.